Welcome to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. Each week, Dr. Rob sits down with athletes, executives, and expert coaches to talk about mental toughness and their hinge moment. Here's your host, Dr. Rob. And so on one side of the room, it's me and, and three 14-year-old me and three elderly survivors. And on the other side of the room, it's the vice chief of naval operations, um, who's the number two guy in the Navy, the chief naval historian, an entourage of, of senior naval officers. Um, and um, this, uh, you know, was really a turning moment um, in the momentum for uh, the survivors and I, because Senator Warner um, stated that he was only planning to stay in the hearing for you know his opening remarks but he was so disappointed he was so impressed by the survivors and i and so disappointed in the navy and so captivated by the story that we we're telling him that he stuck around for the full four hours of the hearing mm-hmm. and he said at the end i have righted my course folks when i finished my 100 miler i was happy to be done but i wasn't finished the reason why my legs weren't completely bonked from running was that i used pr lotion by momentous It simply eliminated any lactic acid buildup in my legs, and it's the best product I've ever used. Momentus is a leading nutrition and supplement company which works with over 150 professional and collegiate sports teams. No other company has the accolades of being awarded six innovation contracts from the Department of Defense for Human Performance. Since I started using PR Lotion, I now use their plant-based protein, collagen peptides, and recovery formula. Look, if performing is important to you, do yourself a favor. Go to livemomentous.com. And for listening today, you get the best part, a discount. Enter code DRB20 for 20% off your order. That's DRB and the number 20. livemomentous.com. Optimize perform and recover livemomentous.com so i feel it's important to lay out the story for our listeners and i just pray that i do it justice because this is to honor the servicemen of the uss indianapolis and why our guest is so important today so in 1945 uss indianapolis set sail from san francisco to an island in the philippines on a top secret mission which the contents of the cargo were unknown They would set a speed record to Pearl Harbor and route to the islands and delivered the contents for Little Boy, which was the atomic bomb that would be dropped on Hiroshima. Now, after the successful mission, Indianapolis set forth from Guam Guam to the island of Leyte. On July 30th, she was struck by two torpedoes from an I-58 Japanese submarine from Commander Hashimoto. USS Indianapolis sank in 12 minutes, and it would become the largest naval disaster in U.S. history. Of the 1,195 men aboard the ship, 300 men perished with the sinking, and approximately 880 men entered the water. Only 316 would be rescued. The issues were no one knew where they were. They weren't reported missing when they failed to arrive at Leyte. So four days 
and five nights passed with the crew in the open sea, no food, no water, protection from the elements. The crew suffered from extreme dehydration and many had experienced hallucinations, delirium, and shark attacks. Which brings me to our guest today. Our guest is a naval officer and helicopter pilot since 2007. Currently serves the Pentagon as the protocol officer for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Specializes in matters of aviation, national security, and cybersecurity. He has two master's degrees, one from Harvard, and undergraduate degree was from North Carolina, where he is also a varsity cheerleader. Our guest has several military and civilian awards, including uh, Defense Meritorious Service Medal in 2016. And our guest helped draft legislation in Congress in 2000 that exonerated the unjustly court-martialed captain of the USS Indianapolis, Charles McVeigh III. He was the only captain whose ship had sunk that became court-martialed in World War II. So what began as a history project as a 12-year-old boy turned into a major quest. Our guest has been recognized in Florida on August 24th every year as Hunter Scott Day. And our guest is Hunter Scott. Thank you so much, man, for, for taking the time and joining us. Well, Dr. Bell, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So how'd I do in the intro? <laughs> you made me blush a little bit. I appreciate that. Oh, good, man. I mean... So with this story, um, as a kid, I mean, you're going into sixth grade and that summer you watched Jaws like millions of others. And what was it about Quint's soliloquy that, that grabbed you? You know, I'd seen the movie a whole bunch of times. And the first several times that I watched that movie, I just passed right over that scene. You know, I wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to remember it if you asked me about the movie, because in this, in this in the scheme of the movie, it only takes up about six minutes. Um, and it's, and it's almost just like, you know, just like a little story within a story, but I had been watching the movie that summer with a little different eye this, um, this particular summer. Um, and I was watching it with my dad and leading up to that point, I was in a different frame of mind. I'd been spending a lot of time recently looking for a topic for the national history day competition. And so anything historical I was paying attention to, and so when this scene came up this particular time, I just was in a different frame of mind and I heard it through just a little different lens. And I asked my dad, is that a true story? And he didn't know. So um, both of my parents are educators. Uh, my dad was working on a dissertation at the time. So he said, well, you can come to the library with me next week and um, you know, we'll see if we can find some information on it. And that's, that's how my interest in Indianapolis started. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I watch documentaries and sports documentaries, and that was a documentary that I watched with my kids on the USS Indianapolis. We, we always watch, like as a family, we would watch the important movies because I want my kids to know we need a bigger boat. Like, what's that reference to? You know, because I just don't want them going through life being like, I don't even know what that <laughs> means. Um, so I, I do appreciate that. When, when did the history project, though, become such a hinge moment for you? Yeah, the first time it, it became real for me was when I interviewed um, the first survivor that I talked to, which was Maurice Glenn Bell. I lived in Pensacola, Florida at the time. He lived in Mobile, Alabama, so, you know, less than an hour away. And my parents helped me set up an interview with him. Um, and I remember everything about the interview. Um, 
And uh, um, he told me, you know, just all about, uh, you know, his life and his job on the ship. And um, one thing that he told me in particularly that uh, was, you know, the men of the Indianapolis were in the water for four days and five nights. And like you said in the introduction, 880 men died. And when he looked around at his shipmates um, after they had been rescued, a lot of those guys that died were in what he described in much better physical condition than he was. Um, but he attributed his mental toughness and mental toughness in general to all those that survived. He said that was the difference uh, between the guys that made it um, and, and the guys that didn't. Can you, um, you know, because I, I assume faith is, is, was a part of that as well, especially in his life. I mean, can you elaborate a little bit more on that on, on what he meant? Um, yeah, he was a very religious man and a, and a man of faith um, and a man of prayer. And, um, you know, he, he had uh, constant prayers when he was in the water, both for him and his shipmates, um, and said that uh, his faith was what helped get him through it. Um, and that he knew that he wasn't in the water alone, um, that God was looking out for him. Yeah. You take that a step further. You write 40 letters. So he gives you the name of all the survivors. You write 40 different letters. Um, one of them in particular, it was uh, Morgan Mosley, correct? That's right. Um, can you talk about that, that story, um, you know, interviewing him? Yeah, so Mr. Mosley was the second survivor that I interviewed. Um, and my parents, again, helped me um, set it up. Uh, I met him at a hospital. Uh, he was in visiting um, someone at the hospital. And um, so he came down from the room that he was visiting and we met in the lobby. And I was able to ask him the same questions that I asked uh, Mr. Bell. Um, and again, one of the themes that both of them um, said was that they always felt uh, that their captain was innocent, but they couldn't prove it. Um, and it was uh, the mystery. One of the things that kept me interested in the Indianapolis was not only my relationship with these survivors, but also the mystery of, well, what really happened to the captain? And as I talked to more and more survivors, they all felt that their captain was innocent, that he was railroaded, that he was um, made a scapegoat. I mean, they all had a bunch of different words for it. Um, and they never should have been court-martialed. This court-martial was a miscarriage of justice. And they had tried for almost 50 years at that time uh, to try to raise awareness, to get the Navy to reopen the court-martial. Um, uh, but, but unfortunately, at that point, we're unable to do so. But the mystery of what happened to the captain um, kept me digging. And I would discover, I would dis eventually discover that those answers after a um, little more than a year of research. Mm -hmm. And I have to remind the listeners too. I mean, this, this isn't, this was in the era of microfiche. And I mean, this was, you know, 96, 98. Um, I mean, you really had to do the research on that, man, didn't you? That's right. There was no Google when I yeah. did a Yahoo search. I think I got maybe five or six hits. Uh, so the internet was not a tool that you could use um, reliably to do research, especially on something which at that time uh, was not very widely known uh, because the Navy took such great strides to cover up, even after the ship sank, to cover up for the fact that um, the ship had sunk and that the greatest sea disaster in naval history happened just a few weeks uh, before the war ended. 
Um, so the internet wasn't a great tool. So my dad, I mean, this was really an opportunity for him to teach me how to do research. So we went to the library and, you know, um, he showed me, you know, the first time we went to the library, we pulled some uh, major World War II commentaries and he taught, you know, he's like, all right, I want you to look through the index here and write down um, the everything you can find out about the Indianapolis and the page number you find it on. I'm going to go do my own research and back in a few hours. Um, and then he came back and I had almost nothing written. And uh, he's like, what have you been, you know, he was a little bit frustrated thinking that I, he uses the word lollygagging, you know, that I'd just been wasting my time in the library. And so he pulled the commentaries himself and realized that there wasn't much written in these exhaustive World War II commentaries that were, and so we, we both kind of had the question at the same time, if this story that Captain Quint told were true, and we had uh, been able to get uh, some books, um, uh, but we didn't have them at the time. The librarian then helped us get some books that were out of print um, that other libraries had. Um, so we knew that the story were true, but it seemed odd that it wasn't discussed uh, ad nauseum in some of these World War II commentaries. And then looking uh, through microfish at uh, old newspapers like the Indianapolis Star, um, the, you know, in these newspapers that we thought, you know, around the time of the sinking or, or VJ day might have some information. I mean, we were re really just like looking, you know, treasure hunting through magazines, um, uh, and newspapers trying to find anything we could on the Indianapolis. Um, and we discovered the answer to our question after about a year of research. And that was that the Navy was embarrassed by the fact that this ship, um, sank and the great loss of life that, that occurred right before the war ended and that they had no real accountability for the ship, that, that these men spent four days in the water before they were accidentally rescued, that no search party, um, you know, had been sent, uh, you know, to even look for these guys. I mean, there was just a lot of blunders um, that yeah. the Navy made that, not, that led to the sinking and then in the aftermath, how they handled um, the sinking. Hey, good looking. If you like this podcast and are already a badass, but it's all way too complicated, then visit our website, drrobbell.com, and schedule a call with us to help capture your very own hinge moment. Mm -hmm. I know this conversation could go in so many different ways. Do you think? Because if people are going to be listening to this for the first time, and that's why I think this is important, that they need to know what these men went through. What were some of the what were some of the difficult stories that you were able to listen to um, on the men that were in the water and their experience? One of them, um, a guy named Kozel Smith, and I didn't unfortunately get a chance to talk to him, but he he. Um, I spoke with his, he had already passed away, but he survived the sinking and his wife sent me his memoir. And he wrote a story um, of how a shark grabbed him by the hand and took him down. Um, and I think the third or fourth day that they were in the water and he, he just started punching the shark in the snout, trying to get it to let go of his hand. And then he started pushing, pushing. And he said he felt his finger just dig into the shark and he assumed that he poked the shark's eye and the shark let him go, uh, and he swam to the surface, his hand mangled and bleeding, and he was in this floater, a group of men that were holding onto a floater net, which is, if, if I picture like lanes of a swimming pool crisscrossed together that they're holding onto, and, um, and he swam in there, and his, and his shipmates were afraid of the blood, 
Um, and you know, everyone was delirious at this time. They hadn't had any food or, or anything to drink. Um, um, and his shipmates afraid of the blood, um, at that point still had knives. And he said, some of them started taking out his knives and stabbing at him and threatening him. So he got back in the water, uh, out of the floater net with, uh, with his shark, with the sharks, because he was afraid of his delirious shipmates at the time. And he ended up surviving. Um, and then later in, in a lot of the groups, um, you know, the, the senior officer in the group would have people take their knives and everyone drop them to the bottom of the ocean um, so that that would no longer be a threat. And a lot of the survivors have stories like that. I mean, it's just hard to fathom right. being in the water in the middle of the Pacific, um, thinking that you're going to be rescued with your hope diminishing uh, with each passing day um, and no food, no water. A lot of these, the, one of the, there was this huge oil slick were the, um, the, the, just the sheen of oil on the water and they were all covered in oil from head to toe. And that in, which was bothersome at the time ended up saving a lot of people's lives because it protect, protected them from the sun. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the guys have stories a lot like that. Um, and it's just, man, it's just hard to, it, it is really incredible that anybody was able to survive the conditions that, 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 those survivors went through. Yeah. How, how bad, um, this is the part that I, I felt was really important is your story and how you came across this. I think it, it had to be divine because you gave these men agency. You allowed them the opportunity to talk about because they had held this as secret and it wasn't anything that they were able to share at that point. How, how did they struggle mentally in the years after this? That was a struggle and everyone handled the struggle in their own way. Um, Captain McVeigh. Um, and I will get, to, I will get to that point. Okay. All yeah, right. I will get to him. Um, you know, everyone handled it differently. Um, some um, talking about it uh, in the aftermath was a release mechanism for them. Um, uh, but I would say probably very few of the survivors that I talked to um you know, handled the stress in that regard. I think a lot of them um, didn't talk about it um, for years. And then over the years, as they did talk about it, and as reunions became more frequent um, and, and uh, the survivors continued to form um, that bond over the rest of their lifetime, eventually more and more survivors uh, were comfortable talking about it and telling those stories. Um, but even when I start, so from 1945, I started this research in 1996, 1997. Um, you know, and even at that point, some of them were still not comfortable talking about it. And in fact, in a few of the interviews that I did, um, either the survivor or their spouse or a family member would tell me, you know, that's the, you know, talking to you or writing, filling out the questionnaire that I had emailed them. Um, or mailed them. Uh, this was pre, you know, these guys weren't on email at the time. Um, was the first time that even their families had heard uh, them talk about it. Um, and so, you know, everybody coped with the stress a little bit differently. Some survivors never went to the reunion, um, said they just didn't, you know, for whatever reason, just, you know, that was a part of their life that, um, you know, it was just really, really difficult. And the reunion brought up too many memories. 
um, for, you know, for them to be comfortable going. So they all had different mechanisms for dealing with the stress, but I think, um, yeah. You had major challenges from this history project. Um, and your dad had a quote, right? Like what, after, um, what it, what it takes to make you quit, what does it take to make you quit? Um, why was it so important for you to just keep continuing this and having people know about this story? Well, for a few reasons. Um, one, I felt that it was the right thing to do. Um, um, and I never really had any doubt um, it, um, that we wouldn't be successful in exonerating the captain um, and awarding, you know, and bringing recognition to the, to the guys. Uh, but I always felt it was the right thing to do. It was unfathomable for me, um, especially at the time as a kid, um, to think that the Navy would trust a ship, a captain and a crew so much to put the atomic bomb on them, um, send them on a top secret mission. And then after the sh ship sank, lose track of them and never send any. I mean, I just couldn't fathom that the Navy would lose a ship. Um, and then once they lost the ship, I couldn't fathom that the Navy would court-martial uh, the captain and um, bring the Japanese submarine commander who sank the ship to the United States to testify against him. And one of the things I found out in my research um, through talking to Commander Hashimoto, who was the commander of the submarine, is he said the Navy intentionally mistranslated his testimony. He said he knew that because he spoke English at the time, but the Navy insisted that he speak um, through an interpreter. And he brought it to the interpreter's attention and the, the interpreter said, uh, basically told him to shut up. He said, what I have said is good enough. And wow. uh, Commander Hashimoto actually wrote a letter to um, the U.S. Congress, um, to the Senate, um, you know, saying that he felt that the court, you know, ever since that day, he felt the court martial was contrived um, and hoped that the Navy would do the right thing to, you know, to exonerate the captain and restore honor to the crew. Wow. So into... Um... Captain McVeigh, and just to try to lay this out, they make record time there. Um, an escort was not given to the USS Indianapolis. And one of the strategies that ships were supposed to do were these zigzagging techniques. When they did them with a bunch of different ships, um, there was even an accident that happened, I think, with the Queen Mary that cut another ship in half. But they're supposed to zigzag. And the research I came across, it said, like, even at its top, and correct me if I'm wrong, but 15%, it would maybe reduce the factor of 15%. But Commander Hashimoto even testified that said it wouldn't have mattered what they were doing because they were heading right at them. All these factors led to, um, you know, the, you know, the aftermath. When the major challenges then of, of turning this kind of into a lack uh, into an act of Congress, you even got a letter from the president saying it's not going to happen, but you persisted through that. I think that's one of the things about youth um, is the letter from the president doesn't have the same uh, magnanimity that it would uh, now at our ages. Um, and so I just said, okay, president said, no, what's next? Um, and um in hindsight, I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, uh, 
you know, not not taking no for an answer, um, especially because I believed, um, you know, that, that we were doing the right thing. Um, and I wrote a letter to the Secretary of the Navy um, asking him to reopen the court-martial. He also um, wrote a polite but stern no letter um, saying that the Navy had looked at this in the past and they stand by their decision, um, you know, dur during Captain McVeigh's court-martial. Right. The, um, before we get exactly into Charles McVeigh, one of the stories that stood out to me was from Chief Warren Officer Woods who was in the radio room and just, again, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I try to make this as, as accurate as possible, but he actually went down with the ship to ensure that the distress signals were sent. And this seemed to me like this, this part like seemed to be the hardest to swallow for me that these messages didn't, did end up getting out, but they weren't received well, were they? Well, so there was a radio tech second class named Jack Miner. Um, who was a radio man on watch at the time the torpedo hit, and he ended up surviving the sinking. And um, um, so to catch the listeners up, um, uh, after the National History Day competition, so I started doing all this research for the National History Day competition. Um, I talked to a bunch of survivors, did a bunch of research that I felt built a compelling case that proved that the captain was innocent and never should have been court-martialed. Um, my goal at the time was to use the National History Day competition to which the national contest is in Washington, D.C. as a platform to raise awareness um, for the Indianapolis and hopefully get some congressional attention um, uh, to this as well. But I was disqualified at the state level. And so, you know, kind of my hopes and dreams of making it to D.C. to the national contest were, were crushed. So I displayed my topic in my local, my uh, history fair project in my local congressman's office. It was Congressman Joe Scarborough in Florida's first district at the time. Um, and eventually, uh, Pensacola being a big Navy town, people started coming in his office um, uh, on the word that this middle school boys project was in there that, um, you know, that here was this kid who'd done a lot of research on a bunch of a group of World War II veterans that would be interesting to the local community. So people started coming into his office uh, just to take a look at this project. Well, it got his attention. And it was just a project displayed, a display board in his office. So he called me in one day. Um, I told him the story of the Indianapolis, of the loss of life that occurred, um, of how the men were you know, abandoned in the Pacific, and then of the injustice that I felt done to Captain McVeigh. And then I showed him a whole bunch of stuff um, that I had uncovered during uh, my research that I thought proved that case. Um, told him about my letter to President Clinton and to Secretary Dalton, who was the Secretary of the Navy at the time. Um, and he said, well, I think I can help you out. What if we introduce legislation to Congress and see if we can get you know, Congress um, to make this right? And so that's the track that we went down. And then over the course of a little over a two-year period, um, a group of survivors and I would, um, would go to D.C. and we'd meet with congressmen and senators to try to gain co-sponsors on the legislation uh, that we had introduced. And in one of those meetings, Jack Miner, uh, who was the radio tech that uh, sent out the SOS, we're walking down the street from one um, house office building to another. And I casually mentioned that the SOS um, uh, was uh, received in three different places and that I had talked to either people who were on watch at the time who received it um, or people who knew about it or, or read it in uh, a logbook or uh, somewhere. And he stopped me, he put his hand on my shoulder and he stopped me. He said, what are you talking about? 
And so um, I pulled, opened my briefcase, pulled out my notebook, showed him um, what I was talking about. And he started crying and he sat down on a bench um, because he saw the bit indicator switch uh, from black to white. And he said, I knew that that message was sent, but the official Navy record all these years, and it had been um, more than 50 years, he never knew that the message was received. Um, and he said, I knew it because I saw that it was received, but I never could prove it um, until that moment. Um, and so. Um, um, what, what, what did that do for you at that moment? I and mean, what was that like? That was a powerful moment. You know, I didn't really know what to say. So I just sat with him um, and listened um, while he told me, uh, you know, the story that I just told told you and we had our arms around each other. Um, but, you know, it, it confirmed to, to me that, that we were doing the right thing. Um, you know, uh, his, the, most of the survivor's interest was gaining um, uh, justice for their captain. But I also had a goal in this, which was um, telling the story of the men of Indianapolis um, and getting congressional recognition because 800, you know, for all these men, because 880 men uh, died in the sinking and they never really received the appropriate recognition that they should have um, after helping bring a quick end to the war because the Navy was so embarrassed by the fact that they lost this ship. And so equally as important for me was to bring recognition, you know, to finally bring recognition um, of the United States government um, to, to the men of the Indianapolis. And can you talk to us about when that took place and what that, and what that was like? Yeah. So um, I'll talk, let me, I'm going to start a little bit before that took place. So we spent a couple of years, groups of survivors and I would go back and forth from our various homes across the country to DC. And we'd all meet up in DC, um, you know, to try to, with the congressmen and the senators to raise awareness and support for the legislation. Um, and then we um, were able to get a meeting with a senator from New Hampshire named Bob Smith, who was on the Senate Armed Services Committee. And we had a particularly great meeting with him. So he said, you know, I'm going to bring this before the committee. Senator John Warner is the chairman of the committee. Um, and this will give us a chance to tell your story um, and give the Navy a chance to respond. Um, and so in September 1999, um, I was 14 at the time, a group of survivors, uh, and I testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee against the Navy. And I had done a lot of research um, and had lots of help, you know, doing this research. Right. Um, but the Navy had not taken a look at any of the research that I'd done and, and had made attempts to make available to them. And so the Navy was unprepared, um, you know, for the case that the survivors and I laid out for them. And so on one side of the room, it's me and, and three 14-year-old me and three elderly survivors. And on the other side of the room, it's the vice chief of naval operations, um, who's the number two guy in the Navy, the chief naval historian, an entourage of, of senior naval officers. Um, and um, this, uh, you know, was really a turning moment um, in the momentum for uh, the survivors and I, because Senator Warner um, stated that he was only planning to stay in the hearing for you know, his opening remarks. 
but he was so disappointed. He was so impressed by the survivors and I, and so disappointed in the Navy and so captivated by the story that we were telling him that he stuck around for the full four hours of the hearing. Mm-hmm. And he said, at the end, I have righted my course. Um, and having Senator Warner on, you know, on, you know, on the team now, um, was really a momentum change. And so, um, due to some, uh, parliamentary issues, um, uh, we ended up, um, uh, attaching the legis- the resolution, the wording of the resolution that we introduced to the armed services appropriations measures that year. Um, and so when the appropriations passed, um, so did, uh, um, our resolution, which brought justice, um, to Captain McVeigh and awarded a Naval Unit Commendation um, to the entire final crew of the USS Indianapolis. And that President yeah. Clinton signed that legislation October of 2000. And um, unfortunately, Captain Base, one of his sons, Chemo, passed away one week before that happened. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was able to talk to, to Chemo right before he passed. I said, you know, Chemo, we are close um, because you know, chemo had been helping a lot to try to, um, restore honor to his father. And I told him, I knew we were close that it was going to happen any day now. And sure enough, it happened a week later. Wow. I, I can, I can picture that scene being really impactful when that movie gets released, man. So the Navy just, they just weren't prepared. No, they were not prepared. Wow. Yeah, that's right. Wow. So, uh, Captain McVeigh, he, he took his own life in 1968, and it, it was a tragedy because he, he would receive letters from uh, surviving family members of, of his crew still, you know, damning him and holding him responsible. And he, he I, as I understood him, mean, he kept every letter and held that. Um, I, did, I just can't imagine the trauma that he went through during that time. He did. That was really tough for him because the story that anybody knew, including those who lost you know, their family members on the Indianapolis was that it was the captain's fault. Um, but, it, you know, we were able to, to show that it wasn't his fault. Um, but he took that, he took that very hard. Um, and that was also something that I had a difficult time coming to grips with was the, the fact that people could be so mean and so, you know, hurtful. Um, you know, I, chemo would tell me stories of how his dad would get letters in the mail, you know, Merry Christmas. I hope you're having a great Christmas. I'm not because you killed my son, you know, or, or something like that. Um, so that was, that was tough for, you know, 12, 13 year old me to, to hear. And, um, you know, unfortunately so tough for, for Captain McVeigh that he ended up taking his own life. With, with respect to that process that took place, um, because people I'm sure are listening and like, well, why was he court-martialed? Um, can you walk us through then, uh, walk us through then what happened like to the SOS messages and where they went? Um, sure. So the first question, why was he court-martialed? Um, I, he was ultimately court-martialed because he was the captain of the ship. Um, and when these things happen, um, you know, the, the, the military always likes to pin the blame on, on someone or something. And the captain is always first in the line of, uh, you know, the captain is ultimately responsible for everything that goes on his ship, on, on his ship. And there was two charges brought against him. Um, uh, but n- neither of which he was guilty of, um, and and which is what we were able to to eventually show. 
And then the SOS messages um, were received in three different places. And one, um, they thought, uh, well, it turns out that um, the person who received it had been drinking and may have been intoxicated. And so uh, received the message, um, replied, and then fell back asleep before he was able to take action. The second instance, um, the person who received the message thought it might be a prank by the Japanese to lure rescue vessels in the area. And then in the third, um, the uh, person on duty uh, took, uh, uh, took initiative and sent two tugboats um, to the location of the SOS. Um, and when his boss returned um, and his boss had left orders not to be disturbed, um, he ordered the tugboats back because he couldn't confirm the location. Um, and he was a little bit offended that this um, uh, young sailor took initiative uh, without asking permission. And so he ordered the tugboats back. Yeah. And then the other part was after the Indianapolis did not show up at Leyte, what took place then? Yeah. So when they didn't show up, they were, there was a, there was, um, Back then they communicated, um, so uh, they were, the Navy released a message, um, but the transmission was garbled. And so the dates that the Indianapolis was supposed to arrive to meet for gunnery practice with the ship was um, the USS Idaho was garbled. They didn't know exactly what day that the, um, the, the Indianapolis would arrive. So there was ambiguity just before the Indianapolis ever left port. Um, and then, um, uh, the fleet commander at the time uh, had um, what turned out to be an ambiguous order that the arrival of combatant ships was not to be reported in case anybody had broken our code, they wouldn't know where our ships were, but it didn't address the non-arrival of combatant ships. When the Indianapolis didn't show up, nobody knew what to do. So it was never reported. Hmm. Um, so a combination of those two things, you know, and then the, you know, it was like the, this, you know, in the Navy, we used the term the Swiss cheese model a lot where all the holes aligned and, um, you know, that um, ultimately leads to disaster. And that was certainly the case for the Indianapolis. Sure. And so, and then it was by sheer luck that the pilot, I believe, was just checking out something at his thing and was able to see that oil slick. Uh, that's right. Um, a guy named uh, uh, Chuck Gwynn um, was on a mission to uh, find enemy submarines. And he saw the big oil slick that I mentioned earlier. And so he... Um, opened his bomb doors just in case he needed to drop a torpedo on a submarine. And as he got down to drop a torpedo, he saw heads bobbing in the water. Um, and if you think about that from the perspective of the men in the water, they have you know been in the water four days. They're, they don't even flag down overflowing planes anymore because nobody was looking down. And so now all, they, a plane clearly sees them, comes down and they see the bomb doors open and they see that this plane's getting ready to drop a torpedo on them. So they go from a high that they've been uh, spotted to like, uh, now they're, we're getting ready to, you know, to be torpedoed, but it, it ended up, um, they described, um, uh, Chuck Gwen as their angel from heaven, uh, because he recognized him. He radioed for help. Um, uh, the first person to arrive was another pilot named Adrian Marks flying a seaplane and he landed his seaplane, um, and was able to motor around and, and pick up 56 of the guys that were in the worst condition. Um, and give them uh, a, a sip of water. Um, and that's, that's how the rescue began. Mm -hmm. And then it was still hours later before the ships were able to show up. That's right. Port, right. That's right. 
Yeah, it took, it took, um, there was a few different rescue ships, but it, it took hours and on to the next day, ships kept arriving and kept picking up men and over, you know, this men, by the time they picked everybody out of the water, it was over 50 square miles of yeah. water. That's what was amazing to me. Cause I remember uh, reading about Captain McVeigh was seven to 10 miles away from some of the men. Cause he was actually had that raft. I, I was, that was shocking that they would be that far away from each other. You know, winds and currents and yeah. jumping off the ship at different times. I mean, the ship sank quickly. Um, and so the guys, you know, were pretty close to the same spot, but it happened at night and rough seas and, you know, the, you know, men just drifted apart. Yeah. So Admiral Ernest King, um, from what I've read too, I mean, um, Captain McVeigh's father was Admiral it seemed like Admiral King had it out for Captain McVeigh. Can you talk about that? Well, there were some rumors. Apparently, um, uh, as a young ensign, um, you know, these these are all, some of these are rumors, but uh, yeah. Admiral King had been reprimanded by Captain McVeigh's father. Um, but, you know, who knows? I doubt, you know, it, it seems like a big stretch to... Um, you know, then later court martial somebody's son because you're reprimanded as an ensign. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then ultimately, um, you know, Admiral King was ultimately responsible uh, for the Indianapolis uh, because it was, uh, you know, it was a ship under um, his command or his purview at the time. Um, and so a lot of people think that Admiral King should have been on the stand and not Captain McVeigh. Um, and that he used Captain McVeigh to cover up for a bunch of mistakes that were made under his command. And so he chaired the, you know, he was in charge of the court-martial. He appointed uh, the members of the court-martial board who uh, I am told some depended on him for uh, promotion um, and that he had an ulterior motive that um, he, you know, needed Captain McVeigh to be found guilty in order to protect himself. Um, you know, how much of these things are true, um, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but um, you, you could certainly find some motive in there, just given the nature of his command at the time. Yeah. When did your interest in um, joining the Navy begin? Well, I grew up in Pensacola, Florida, which is a Navy town. They call it the Cradle of Navy, Naval Aviation. So I grew up watching the Blue Angels, but none of my immediate family has been in the military. But um, it was it, directly as a result of my relationship with these men that I felt a call to serve. You know, I wanted to serve in the Navy and serve my country just like they had. Um, and so that's the reason that I joined the Navy. It, I can't pinpoint it to a single time, but it was this growing feeling I had uh, as my bond with the survivors um, grew deeper. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing that. Where, you know, as a as a country, what would you like to see happen in terms of, um, you know, honoring these men or honoring, um, you know, just those that have served in general? Where would you like to see that go? Um, well, I see it as my responsibility to continue to tell their story um, because um, their story is um, uh, both tragic that the great loss of life occurred, but then it's, um, you know, there's triumphant on several levels too. I mean, they helped bring a quick end uh, to the war. Um, those who died did not um, 
die in vain. They died with, with real purpose um, serving their country. Um, and I see it as my job to tell as many people as I can about the heroism uh, of these guys. I mean, they're, they're really my heroes. Um, and so I think the more people who know the story, um, uh, the better. And there's a lot of people telling the story. There's a USS Indianapolis survivor uh, legacy organization of the families of survivors that have formed that continue to tell the story. Um, and there's some real champions of the story. Uh, the former uh, submarine commander, uh, Captain Bill Toady, uh, uh, and I say uh, who commanded the USS Indianapolis submarine, is a huge champion uh, of their of their cause, and has in recent years brought um, uh, congressional recognition, um, even more congressional recognition, uh, to the men in Indianapolis. Um, he helped spearhead a movement to get a ship, uh, an else a littoral combat ship, named in honor of the cruiser USS Indianapolis. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, there's a bunch of people in this legacy organization uh, like him who are doing really incredible work to, to preserve the story of these guys and, and to make it as widely known as possible. What does the future hold for you? Oh, that's a good question. I wish I knew. I, I'm in the Navy, you know, I've been in the Navy 15 years. And I love being in the Navy. Um, you know, I really enjoy the, so many aspects of the job from the flying to the service to, um, you know, you know, I even like, you know, I really like you know, being on ships and just being on the ocean and, um, mm -hmm. you know, building relationships with my shipmates and my fellow pilots in the squadron. So I hope to con continue to serve in the Navy as long as the Navy will allow me to serve. Will you see um, a life in politics when when you're done? Oh, I don't know about that. That's, um, you know, I've always felt called to public service um, mm -hmm. in some regard, um, but politics is just something that when I, uh, it's just, I, I don't know um, because I, it, it, nothing about politics um, appeals to me, um, but, um, you know, in my time, whenever my time in the Navy is done, I, will, I still feel called to serve in some capacity. Want to listen to your favorite music, but you're sick of all the commercial interruptions and negative news today? Tune in to KukoRadio.com. Music for your mindset. We're a commercial-free online radio station. Play nothing but hits. Our free iOS and Android apps are available for download at KukoRadio.com. Yeah. So we're not doing the 2024 uh, Hunter Scott for president. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> bumper stickers yet. <laughs> What um, what question should I be asking that that I just haven't asked in this interview? Well, I don't know. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, what if I could ask you a question, what aspects of, um, you know, you write a lot about mental toughness. Um, what stood out, you know, after hearing me talk, what stood out to you that, uh, either I said, or that, uh, or that you read about these men that, you know, exemplified the, you know, the mental toughness traits that you write about. Well, especially with you, I think when I always say our why has to make us cry, if it doesn't, it, it's not deep enough. And, for you to take all those steps, I think it, I think there are certain people that get appointed to 
different missions in life. And I think that was really evident from hearing you talk about this was meant to be, and you were meant to um, honor these men and see everything through your um, tenacity and ability to not take no for an answer. And then just to be able to see it all the way through. Cause I think a lot of the times um, and, and you've quoted Abraham Lincoln and, and um, but I think a lot of the times we just don't see it all the way through. So that's the part I think, especially when it comes to mental toughness that stands out from, from talking with you. Well, the other thing I think I'll add to that um, is the people I often get uh, more of the credit than I deserve. I mean, there were so many people, I think we, we were successful um, uh, in exonerating cabinet Bay and, re and recognizing the crew because we had such a great team of people. But in reality, I was a only, I was a small part of this. Um, none of this would have happened without my parents. I mean, my parents are, have been uh, my mentors and my role models and now my friends um, that I'm older. Um, and this was an opportunity, like I mentioned earlier, for my dad to teach me how to do research. I mean, that was his goal um, at, at the time. And, it, you know, I scored, I think I scored a perfect score in the research section, which we used to have on our statewide standardized test back then. So, and, you know, that we met his goal. Um, nice. Uh, you know, and, and, and in fact, I think far exceeded it. Um, uh, but, you know, this was a big financial expense for them. The mass mailings driving me around to talk to the survivors, multiple trips to, to D.C. I mean, they paid for all this um, as an investment in my education. And none of this would have been possible without them. Um, and I really am just inspired by them and motivated by them. And my dad, you mentioned or started to mention it earlier. Uh, you know, my dad likes the term to use a uh, dream builder uh, a lot, which he describes as someone that helps you reach your goals um, and, and, and is a positive influence, not someone that tells you all the reasons that you won't be successful. And so my parents were, were dream builders for me, as were a lot of other people. Um, there was a, a lobbyist named Mike Monroney uh, who, had, who had retired, but at one time was one of the 50 most influential lobbyists in Washington. He came out of retirement after he heard about our cause and helped set up almost all the meetings with congressmen and senators that we met with that enabled this legislation to be successful. He helped uh, draft the legislation. I mean, he coordinated virtually every aspect of the legislative affairs of the survivors and I. And there was Senator Smith, there was Congresswoman Julia Carson, who was the congresswoman from Indianapolis that really mm -hmm. took this on as a personal cause and championed um, the survivors and me. And I could go on and on and on, cabinet-based family, the survivors, you know, who were a part of this process um, and who oftentimes don't get the credit. Um, um, but in reality, none of this would have been possible without that entire team of people. Yeah. And I, and I do, I appreciate you mentioning, mentioning that. Um, Hunter, I just really, really am so appreciative of you taking your time and, and sharing this story and I just can't thank you enough, man. And um, I, I did have one more question. Why were you, um, why did you get disqualified from the, the competition? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the history fair coordinator for my county um, had given me some instructions. I had these two notebooks. Um, one was all my interviews with survivors. And the other was declassified documents, microfish, you know, products, like newspapers, magazines, stuff that I had found time, letters, you know, it was all primary sources um, that I had come up with. And um, I had a display board 
And she said, you need to display those notebooks on the floor in front of your display board. The judges will be impressed. Well, they had changed the rule from the version of the rule book that she, she gave me. And you could no longer have a floor display in front of the display board. And so after the contest, they highlighted that section of the rule book, put it on an easel in front of my project. Um, and the girl that I had beaten in the state competition or in the, the uh, county competition got first at state and was on, on her way to D.C. So it was on a I was I mean, I was I was actually in tears after that. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I had put so much work and effort into this uh, project and had big dreams for it. Um, and then those dreams were crushed just like that. But it turns out this was all a part of. Um, you know, I'm a, a man of faith. I mean, this was all, I, you know, in hindsight, a part of God's bigger plan. Yeah. Um, Do uh, you think if you would have won that it still would have worked out how it did? That's hard to say. Right. I think it would have probably not um, because I would have, it's, you know, it's hard to say, but it's hard to imagine that it would have worked out like this. I mean, it certainly would have delayed it. Um, the way it happened now, because I got disqualified, we worked it to display my project in the congressman's office, you know, so that wouldn't have happened, which was the impetus, um, right. you know, for all the legislative efforts. And so it certainly would have delayed that, but I also don't know what would have come out of the national sure. competition. So, um, but in hindsight, I'm, I'm grateful, you know, for the disqualification. <laughs> yeah. Again, thank you so much, man, for your time and, and, and just really enjoyed talking with you and, and, and having you share, man. Thanks so much. Well, it's an honor to be here. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks, Dr. Bell. Thanks for listening to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. To find out more about Dr. Rob, visit his website at drrobbell.com or follow him on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform to get the next episode of Mental Toughness as soon as it's available. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.